Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God continues to speak to us from the book of Job. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me just to justify would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So for the last, uh, goodness, five weeks or so, we have attempted to address uh, the very real tension between a belief in a good God and the reality of suffering and evil in the world. And this has been no small tension, especially given the reality that suffering is going to uh, befall all of us. And even if we are lucky enough to live a life largely free of the regular rhythms of suffering in our lives, no one, none of us here, will escape the ultimate suffering, which is death. Death awaits all of us. And this conundrum of suffering is one of the most actually unifying features of humanity. I mean, for millennia, humans have been trying to make sense of such uh, things, uh, of such suffering, much of which has been seen in the the great religions and philosophies of the world. As an example, uh, Hinduism tends to see suffering uh, as the result of our action. There's a pretty tight uh, cause and effect correlation, uh, which leads to concepts like karma. Uh, Within Buddhism, Buddhism tends to see, uh, doesn't actually really tend to see much of a problem with evil. Suffering is uh, just kind of a normal rhythm. Evil is just kind of a normal rhythm uh, of the life in which we live and the way that we can end that suffering. And evil um, is the, what they consider the eightfold path within Islam. Um, Islam tends to see suffering as tests given by God to assess those who are truly faithful. And I know those are very overly simplistic um, understandings and summaries of these ideas, but what we've tried to see is that up and against all the other philosophies of the world when it comes to suffering, the Christian perspective is actually something quite different. Because the Christian faith is rooted in something quite different, of course, that being the God of the Bible. And the difference is that suffering 
is not an intended feature of life, and we've been processing this. It's not an intended feature of this life, but it's a glitch. It's an abnormality of the world in which we live. Uh, Things are not supposed to be the way that they are. But that in the midst of suffering in this world, the God of the Bible exists both in transcendence and in power, while also being a God who is intimately near and close to us. And to forget either one of those realities is to actually begin to lose the uniqueness of the Christian faith and the Christian perspective on suffering. And this is why we so regularly struggle with the notion of a good God and also, at the same time, the presence of suffering. But what we've seen over the course of these weeks is that the book of Job refuses to allow us to see suffering purely in a cause-and-effect kind of way. It refuses to allow us to see evil and suffering as just normal and the way things should be. Instead, the book forces us to see that suffering reveals that this world is not the way that it should be, and it confronts our assumptions that if suffering exists, then God must not then be a good God. And today, we're going to see a whole new dimension in the book of Job uh, and the book of Job's teaching on suffering here in chapter 30, starting in chapter 38. Because for the first time in all of the chapters that we've looked at thus far, what we see now is God finally speaking. God gives this speech, and in this speech, we find some answers to the problem of suffering. Answers that might not provide us all the answers that we desire to know, but my friends, these answers are the answers that we need to know about suffering in this world. And so to see that, let's consider a couple of things. Let's consider God's response. Let's consider Job's response. And then let's consider, finally, an unexpected response. All right? So first, God's response. To begin, uh, where have we been thus far? Uh, as a reminder, we have Job. Job is a righteous man, and he has been targeted by Satan as a result of that righteousness. Satan inflicts this terrible suffering upon Job in an attempt to get Job to curse God. Uh, and as a result, Job loses his family, he loses his wealth, he loses his health. Now, Job then has these three friends that come on the scene who are, they basically are attempting to convince him that the reason that he is suffering uh, is because in some way he has been wicked and unjust. They have no categories for an innocent sufferer. And so they press Job to admit what he's done. For surely God would not bring such calamity upon his life for no reason. But Job refuses to admit any wrongdoing. For as he has claimed over and over again, he did nothing wrong. And they then come back to him. And there's this back and forth arguing that takes place between Job and his friends about Job's righteousness. And along the way, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, in that arguing back and forth, God's righteousness begins to be questioned in the midst of all of this. And basically, that argument was a just God would not allow suffering to befall a righteous man And so if Job is truly righteous, then I guess God then is the one who is unjust. It seemed like a logical conclusion. But now, during all this dialogue between the friends, we also have seen Job crying out to God for answers. But for nearly the entirety of this book, God has been completely silent. He never responds. He never gives answers. That, though, begins to change now in our passage. Because for the first time in chapter 38, we see now God 
speaks. And when he speaks, verse 1 tells us that he speaks to Job out of a storm. In other words, he comes in great power and in great might. And in that power and might, he says things like, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. He goes on and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimension. Surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it. He goes on in verse 12. Have you given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? In other words, I am literally the creator of the universe and you dare question me. Then in verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 8, he said, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like this? And otherwise, in justifying yourself, Job, you dare question my integrity? What power do you think you have, mere mortal? As you could imagine, if God shows up in a storm with statements like this, you can imagine it would be a terrifying scene. God is not playing around, and he ensures there is no uncertainty about his power. He is the transcendent one who should not be doubted. And interestingly, this kind of tracks with what we've already seen already in the story and what we would have already assumed about God and what those in the story have already assumed about God. God has really only been presented as this mighty, powerful God throughout the narrative thus far. But I want to point something out that's a really interesting feature of the book of Job that we actually completely miss in our English translations of the Bible. Uh, so in the Bible, there are various words that are used to describe God. One example is that through all, all throughout the Old Testament, there are various uses of the words El or Elohim or El Eloah. And all of these words, which are all kind of derivatives of the same word, they are often translated in God, as God in our English translations. You know, the term El, which is, uh, you may, may sound familiar with terms like El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. Or Elohim, maybe a word that you've heard before, which is a, a plural version of that word. Uh, Eloah, which is a singular version. All of these are different generic ways of talking about a God of power. The one who is over all creation. It speaks of this transcendent providence that God holds. And therefore, the entire narrative of this book, what we've seen is that every single time Job or his friends refer to God, what we've seen, and it hasn't been obvious in the English translations, is that they're always referring to God as El or Elohim. One interesting fact, that of the 58 times that Eloah is used in the Old Testament, 42 of those times are actually found here in the book of Job. In other words, the book is constantly emphasizing the power and the might of God. And frankly, this is why Job and his friends, uh, and Job at times, come to their conclusions about suffering. Meaning God is powerful and mighty. And so as a result, he is a God who then, of course, must punish. And so when we suffer, it is because we have angered this God of power and might. Such a God has no patience or time to worry about the plight of humans, so you better just keep your head down, or this too will be your fate. With that in mind, we then get to chapters 38 and 39. And all of that now seems to track. God showed up 
as we might expect he would at this point. He shows up with this seemingly, like, who do you think you are? He seems to show up as this El Shaddai, God Almighty. But there's something else that we might miss if we're not careful. There is another name for God in the Old Testament. And it's not a generic name that speaks of a God of power, but rather it's the personal name of God. It's a name that is given, God gives to his covenant people, the people to whom God has committed himself in a personal and intimate way. And that name for God is Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God to his covenant people. Now, in our English translations, we don't uh, usually see that word exactly for various reasons. But if you look in your Bibles, Yahweh is always translated Lord, and it's always placed in caps. Uh, the word is itself. If you pull up uh, verse 1, just to show you what I mean. If you see Lord in lower cases, uh, that is usually the word Adonai. You're getting a little bit of a Hebrew lesson here. Sorry, but it's helpful. When you see Adonai translated um, is Lord, it's lower caps, which is another generic name. But when you see it in all caps, which is what we see here in verse 1, that is the covenant name of God. That is Yahweh. Now, I find chapter 38, verse 1, one of the most profound statements in the entire book that the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Job out of, a storm, out of a storm. Why is that so profound? It's so profound because this intimate, covenant-making, covenant-keeping, personal, committed God showed up in power and might. Right? The term Yahweh throughout this book, we see the narrator use it from uh, time to time. We see the narrator use it in the very beginning when God is speaking to Satan. Uh, Job uses it once back in chapter 12, uh, but he's actually not talking to God when he does. And for the rest of that chapter, 12 different times, he refers to God as El in some form. Other than that, this is the first time since his suffering started that we see Job reminded of Yahweh, the God of nearness, the God of covenant promises. The, the fundamental failure of the arguments throughout the book of Job have been this emphasis on a God of power without the mitigating reminder that this God of power is also a God of intimate nearness who is committed to the good of his people. One without the other is a broken view of God that will lead to a misunderstanding or outright rejection of his true character. God responds in a storm, but he responds as Yahweh the one of covenant promises. So with that in mind then, what does this then do for Job? Well, we see Job's response in uh, chapter 42. Job's response is this. Look at uh, in verse 1 of chapter 42. We see that Job answers. And to whom is he answering? He's answering to Yahweh. His response, my friends, again, is, it's a profound one because he turns to respond. As he turns to respond, his words are situated in this reorientation of Yahweh. He says, Yahweh, my covenant-keeping, my intimately close and committed God, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I, I, I spoke of things I did not know, things too wonderful for me to know. In other words, Yes, you are a mighty God whose purposes and power are far beyond what I can possibly comprehend. And in my suffering, I now realize that I surely spoke out of frustration about things that I could not fully know, but 
I recognize that they are likely too wonderful for me to know. I mean, this is not the response of one who is, you know, shaking in his boots at God showing up in this power. Job is not responding as we might think one would respond with God showing up in such power. Because listen to what he's saying. He's saying, God, I know that you have these great plans. I know that they are too wonderful for me to possibly comprehend. And my suffering cannot thwart those plans. His response is both an acknowledgement of God's great power and at the same time, God's desire to use his power for things too wonderful for us to possibly know. And my friends, one of the most consistent ways that we fail to see God rightly and then allow that view to shape our perspective on his character and how he works is by forgetting either his power or his covenant nearness to us. We err by thinking about him only as a transcendent God of power or as a God of nearness, nearness who is committed to me. If we don't hold both of those things at the same time, we have a distorted view of God. You know, for those of us here who maybe are like Job and his friends who see God primarily as Elohim, this great God of power, we view God as maybe powerful, but as a result, we can also see him as uncaring or distant, or silent, or maybe unjust. Sure, he might be all-powerful, but he's not someone that I can trust in, rest in, hope in, because I don't trust that he's actually committed to my good. And so when suffering comes, or when I hear of things that he desires for my life that don't align with what I want for my life, I question his character, I get angry, I accuse him, I reject him, and maybe even get to the point where I doubt his existence at all. A God of power would never, could never allow such suffering to befall me. Nor could he possibly accomplish something through the worst of situations that might be more wonderful that I could, than I could possibly know. Ironically, seeing God as one of power and might only skews our perspective of him. But there's also an alternative error. If one only sees him as powerful, the other, uh, if one error is to only see him as powerful, the other error is to see him only as intimate and near. Now, I don't want to say that, um, that we err when we only see him as Yahweh, because the word Yahweh actually assumes that he is this all-powerful God. Uh, and so I don't want to juxtapose Elohim with Yahweh, but let me just position these two things against each other for a moment. If we only see God as Elohim, this God of power, we will question his character. But if we only see as God as this Yahweh, or this, this covenant-keeping uh, God, this one who is near to us and intimate with us, one of the consequences of that is we will then begin to forget that he is a God of power. We begin to lose sight of this awesome power that he has. The consequence ultimately ends up becoming, when we do that, we create a God of our own making. It's very easy to fall into the rhythms of creating a God of our own making. Seeing God as one committed to me, but then not seeing him as one who produces this experience of awe-inducing wonder. Not seeing him as the one who speaks from a storm results in a God not allowed to challenge me or to do anything outside the scope of what I deem appropriate for my life. He is no longer a God who can demand submission to his will and his purposes. He's no longer a God who is allowed to tell me what is good, right, and true. He's no longer a God who has the right 
as ruler of creation to tell me how to live my life, what to do with my body or my money or my thoughts or my attitudes or my allegiances. He is a God who, because he is committed to me, interestingly, just so happens to want everything for my life that I want for my life. He becomes a God of my own making. But my friends, the God of the Bible is the one committed to the good of his people, but also who comes in the storm confronting us in our rejection or our questioning of his character and his will. All of this here shows us a full picture of who God is. But I also recognize that all of us here, at times, will find ourselves having a wrong view of God by overly seeing him as one of power or by overly seeing him as one committed to us. When in reality, the true God is the one who in his power over us has the right to demand submission to his will, but who is also committed to our good, even in the midst of suffering and pain. For Job, I think it's fair to say that he understood that reality to an extent. But chapter 38 and 39 are actually not uh, the only things that we see in God's response. In fact, God responded to suffering in a way that I don't think Job could have possibly comprehended. And I think Job very much understood that because he said, surely I spoke of things that I don't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. He recognizes that there's something far more glorious that God is doing that he can't comprehend at this moment. There is this unexpected response that God gives that, if, again, if we're not careful, we might miss. And it's a response that shows the fullness of Yahweh's nature and character and commitment to us. Let me show you this very unexpected response. Look at chapter 40, verse 8. I'll tell you what. Uh, until I was studying uh, this passage, I had never noticed this before. This is what verse 8 says. It says, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? In other words, this is God speaking. In other words, to ensure everyone knows that you are righteous, Job, are you really willing to put my righteousness into question? I wonder if another way to put that would be, do you need me to be treated as unrighteous in order for you to be treated as righteous? From Job's perspective, that seems to be what he is doing by his insistence on his own righteousness. And as a result, such a posture is completely wrong and inappropriate. Of course, making God out to be unrighteous in order to make myself righteous is completely wrong-headed. And you know, people actually do that all the time. A very standard argument against the God of the Bible is to claim some kind of moral superiority to the God of the Bible. That's an issue for another day, but it's very common. But even as God is making that accusation uh, uh, against Job, Yahweh is also pointing to a remarkable an unexpected response that he will give to that accusation. While we ultimately condemn ourselves when questioning God's righteousness to justify ourselves, we are nonetheless left with the problem of not being righteous, something that we can never fully and completely be, especially in comparison to this perfectly righteous God. But his commitment to us provides a way for us to be righteous. In verse Eight gives us a clue as to how he goes about doing that. When God asks himself the question, would I condemn myself to justify you? What is the answer to that question? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 actually gives us an answer. If you know 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says this, God made him who, who had no sin 
to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And who is that him? That him is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes to answer the question, would I condemn myself to justify you? Through Jesus, what we see is God stepping into this broken world in which we live, taking upon himself our unrighteousness, our sinfulness, and being treated as though he himself was unrighteous and sinful. I mean, the cross of Christ is God's way of ensuring that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Even here, in Job 38, thousands upon thousands of years before Jesus, thousands of years before the the law of Moses, God is pointing to that coming day when Jesus would decisively take upon himself our condemnation so that we might be justified. And lest anyone assume, like Job's friends probably would have, they probably, Job's friends probably would have looked at Jesus, seen the suffering of Jesus, and just assumed Jesus must have deserved that suffering in some way because of his own unrighteousness. But what we see is that the resurrection of Jesus proves the extent to which that is not the case. The resurrection of Jesus is this vindication of Jesus as the perfectly sinless one. God raised him from the dead to prove his perfect righteousness, his matchless power, and his commitment to you. The work of Jesus is the fullest picture of Yahweh, the God of power, who is also intimately near and committed to our good. He uses his matchless power to make a way for us to know him, to be near to him, and to have hope beyond all of life's circumstances, including the greatest of suffering. And this is what's so unique about the Christian perspective on suffering, that God in his power truly could be indifferent to our suffering and just brush us off as though our pain doesn't matter. Why would one of such great majesty care about the suffering that we experience? But in his intimate love for us, he doesn't just brush off our pain, but he steps into it so that he might be here with us in the midst of it. Before him, suffering is no match for his purposes. And he could easily, it would be so easy for it to not matter to him. At the same time, it matters so much to him that Jesus takes upon himself our unrighteousness all the consequences of our rejection of God on the cross. But then in the power of his resurrection gives us hope and a vision for something on the other side of death. And many of us here, and many of those that we may know, need that kind of hope extended by Yahweh, a God of power and might and intimacy and, and commitment. Our suffering, as much as we want to avoid it, And as much as we don't want it to befall us, also provides us a picture of the fullness of God through that suffering when we see him as Yahweh. And so it it provides not only us hope, but in the season that we've been in, you know, we've talked a lot about this being a um, suffering, being a public witness. This idea of suffering actually giving Christians an opportunity to show the world the love of God even through suffering. This is what it means to be a public witness through suffering. To be able to hope in a God of great power and intimate nearness in the midst of our suffering is such a unique thing because it provides a hope that no other perspective on suffering can possibly provide. And I would encourage all of us to consider in that, where might we be erring? Where, we, where, where might we not be seeing God in his fullness? 
Because some of us here, I think, probably err towards seeing this God of power. Others of us might err toward only seeing him as this God of nearness. But wherever we might land, I encourage us all to see Jesus, the perfect embodiment, fullest picture of Yahweh, the one who has all power, and yet it's also intimately near. That's the kind of God that we can trust no matter what life befalls us. I pray that becomes an encouragement for us. But as we then go out into the world, Christian, I pray that our ability to trust in that Yahweh, God, also becomes a great hope to those who are also suffering in this world. Let's pray. Father, Yahweh, God of great power and also intimate nearness, we need that full picture of you. We need to be reminded that you are not a God of power who is indifferent to our plight. We also need a reminder that you are not just a God who loves us and is near to us, but you're also a God who is transcendence and in authority over all things. We need that full vision of you. And we thank you that in Jesus, we get the fullest picture. We thank you that Jesus, the King, who holds all authority, used that power and authority to lay down his life for the good of his people. Lord, we thank you that in the cross of Christ, he was treated as unrighteous for our unrighteousness so that we might become righteous as he is righteous. We thank you for the hope that that provides us, that there is something beyond the suffering of this world, beyond the sin of this world, beyond death itself. There is hope that you give to us through the person and work of Jesus. And I pray that as we take that more seriously, as we allow that to shape us deeply, that we would then, as we go out into this world, be a people who are able to proclaim a great hope to those in desperate need of such hope. Would you make it so? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc. 